He was a Ukrainian-born clothing manufacturer with a passion for shooting home movies. His tool of choice was the 8mm Bell & Howell Zoomatic Director Series, model 414 PD. The day he shot the film that would haunt America's consciousness forever, he almost decided not to, because it had been raining that morning. The movie lasts exactly 26.6 seconds, 486 frames, one of which would be kept from the world because of a nightmare he had the day after the assassination. The man with the movie camera was, of course, Abraham Zapruder. The man whose head exploded in frame 313 was President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It was the most iconic death ever filmed. It was brutal, public, and captured by accident. In today's podcast, we'll explore death on screen from a very different vantage point. When director Andy Timoner learned that her father wanted to end his life through assisted suicide, she did what she's always done, pick up a camera and start shooting. The resulting film, Last Flight Home, began as a memorial to her father and a memento for her family, as well as a means of processing her own grief. What it became was a gift to the world. Last Flight Home is a movie about choosing to die, a life well lived, and what it means to be a family. Where the Zapruder film is shocking, graphic, and gruesome, Andy's movie is tender, beautiful, and filled with grace. In the discussion that follows, Andy and I talk about her early classic, Dig, a punk rock doc about the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown massacre that put her on the map. That film's 20th anniversary and the odd points of contact between that movie and Last Flight Home. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Andy Timoner. Well, Andy, um, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have the chance to sit down with you. I have been a rabid fan for a long time since you exploded my brain back in the dig days. So I'm so glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of Dig. Next coming year. up, right? Coming up. Are you yeah. you, you got to do the like theatrical, mini theatrical re-release. The one day only it would be awesome. That's what we're doing. Are you? That's fantastic. That. Yeah, we're setting that up and uh, an extended version. Uh, probably going to throw another 30, 40 minutes into the mix and then do a little remastering and outstanding i will be there it'll be like the running time of an average movie these days i will be there fully geeking out because that movie just exploded my brain when it came out i remember so vividly that scene at the showcase you know the meltdown that sort of happens at the showcase and i was like laughing hysterically and turned to my wife my wife is like what the fuck is the matter with you like why are you i'm like that is hilarious but um you mean like uh, the viper room when yeah 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 Yep. Yeah, when I say what's that, and he says blood, and I say what from what, and he says people's faces. Yeah, it's um, amazing. amazing. I was just amazing. like, it was like one of the first concerts I'd ever filmed. Really, you know, imagine I'm like 23 years old, and uh, all of this just unfolds. It's supposed to be an industry showcase, you know. And then I'm next thing I know, Big Ed, the bouncer at Viper Room, steps outside and takes my tape out of my camera. And I'm standing there on Sunset Boulevard having filmed the most incredible thing I've ever filmed. And it's just and been it's now been confiscated. And I'm wow. like crying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So, and you were working with your brother on that back in the day. Is that true? Yeah. And we're back, back together again, working on the re-release. So that is so cool. So, yeah. so, so fascinating. Well, it's, you know, it's so interesting seeing the new film, um, and, and sort of that was my gateway drug to your work, Dig was, you know, and, um, and it's so interesting now, you know, how, I guess how wildly different those two movies are in such a, such a kind of foundational way. Um, you, you know, when you sit there and you look at the poles of that, like, how are you different as a human being, as a filmmaker, as, um, you know, in, in sort of your, in, in your life and journey now in terms of who you are as opposed to them? You know, I think, I think your newest employee, Brooke, and, and anybody else that knows me, uh, as intimately as, as Brooke does, would tell you that I'm all in uh, on everything that I do. I have to be, if anything, I'm more careful now about that because I'm older and I, you know, I, I guess I'm nearly 30 years older than when I started Dig. Um, so um, I don't know that I would go as far as sleeping on the dirtiest couches in America with Anton's feet in my face as I did then or getting arrested a few times as, as, as happened in making that film. Yeah. Um, but if I hadn't made that film, I wouldn't have been able to make last flight home. You know, if I hadn't immersed in verite filmmaking for the last 30 years, I, I don't think I would have approached, um, I wouldn't have even thought to document the last weeks of my father's life as I did. And I didn't think of it as a film. I thought, uh, I thought of it in desperation uh, to bottle mm -hmm. him up somehow. I just needed to somehow remember every word that he said and every expression he made. And um, I was terrified to forget because, you know, my father had a stroke when I was nine from an accident. Uh, his neck had been manipulated in a massage and I can't, I can't remember him able-bodied mm -hmm. from at all. Right. So, so from before I was nine. So I think I had a, a fear, a deep fear that when dad decided he really, really needed to die that, and then we realized that there was a law where he could die within a few weeks um, and that he would be gone, that I would forget him. And when I, I realized, wait a second, I have cameras. I know how to do this. I could document him. I could maybe like bottle him up somehow. And I, I don't think I would have thought of that if I hadn't filmed literally life unfolding ever since dig. Mm -hmm. um, and from then on, you know, I've made many verite films. And so I thought of that and I thought this is an, a, highly inappropriate. So I went to see a therapist um, and said, I'm thinking that I have to film my dad when he comes home to start hospice. And I figured she'd tell me it was a terrible idea. And she said, if you feel like you need to film, then you should film, um, which I didn't expect. So I called dad in the hospital and I said, dad, I feel like I want to set up cameras around you when you come home. And he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. And that was a really interesting answer. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how it happened. But um, I shot it like a film, you know, mm -hmm. but I didn't really realize. And I don't think my, anybody in my family knew that we were really making a film at the time. So what do you tell everybody in terms of, because I imagine, you know, it's such a, kind of profoundly intimate portrait, not just of your father, but of your family and of yourself and the extended family, you know, are you having those conversations in terms of getting everybody's buy-in or does it just sort of begin casually and then sort of, you know, roll into a film or like, what are those conversations to everybody? 
Um, so mom, mom, I guess was she was in a Q&A this weekend at the Milwaukee Film Festival. And she said, well, I never, I never second guess Andy. I don't go against Andy. And that's not true. My mom is from the Bronx, you know, she's right. a tough, she's a tough broad. Right. But I think that there was a, an extent to which she, we were all in shock. That was the other thing the therapist said is that you're going to be in shock. And so you're not going to remember a lot of what happened. And she was absolutely right. Cause as it was happening, I was thinking, Oh, I'm, I, I remember everything, but it's really interesting. As soon as I set the cameras up, I felt so much safer that mm -hmm. I wouldn't forget. And instead of the cameras mediating the experiences, what, what I was scared of, or, you know, it actually helped me to be fully present because I wasn't, Fascinating. it was like, yeah, it was like the first time after making all these really immersive films over so many years that filmmaking was there for me, you know, mm -hmm. on an emotional level and allowed me to be dad's caregiver and not worry about forgetting anything. So, so that was great. I think it worked that way for my family too, except for my sister who is based in New York and hates cameras. Um, I, I adore so I, your sister as a character, by the way, just like absolutely what an amazing <laughs> character on camera and, and talk about her a little bit because like for the I audience will. that hasn't seen it yet, who she is and, and sort of set her up. Sure. So, so, so I had to, so Rachel is a, a very prominent rabbi. Um, she's also my older sister. She's the oldest child of Eli Timoner. And she is uh, leads the biggest reform synagogue in Brooklyn. Um, it's in, in, in New York, I should say, in all of New York. Um, it's based in Park Slope, Brooklyn. She has, you know, congregants like Senator Schumer in her congregation. <laughs> um, she's really a very influential public figure. And she also is a very sensitive, beautiful person and um, loved our father. I mean, our father, right? And for those of you who hasn't, haven't seen this film, he's the most extraordinary man that any of us ever, ever knew. Um, he's just, he's just an absolutely graceful, gentle, funny, extremely intelligent, kind person. Um, he doesn't try to do the right thing. He just does the right thing. That's so the thing. And his whole life, he was like that. And he made Rachel who she is, as she says in the film. And I think he affected all of us, but then also my mom's amazing. And so when he had the stroke, we became the T team. Rachel was 11. I was nine. David was seven. And we, mom was brilliant to spin it in a way that we had to be a team and get dad through this, you know, and, um, unite was, rather than fall apart. Exactly. And, uh, and so, you know, my partner commented also in the Q and a this weekend of just how who scored the film Morgan doctor. I love how, the score too, by the way. Oh, isn't it just, score. yeah, it's, it's spectacular. Really, it, thank you. It really is. Um, I, I said to her this morning, I said, I would not want one thing different about that score, like, or the new Americans, the new one that she scored uh, my newest film. Um, unbelievable. The exact opposite film. And, Again, the score is incredible, so I can't recommend her more to anyone who's listening who needs a composer. But um, and she's free because I'm just in between projects, so <laughs> grab her now. <laughs> but uh, but she said the other day, she's like, she's like, you know, I'm looking at this family, and most families fall apart when someone's dying, and this family just came together, and it was because like it was like the T team reunited mm -hmm. after 40 years, yep. you know, and now we're adults, and we all can bring our A game. And what Rachel brought to the party 
was something else again, because he or she is a rabbi. And I got to tell you, it really helps to have a rabbi in the family mm -hmm. when something like this is happening. I didn't realize how many incredible rituals there are in Judaism. I'm not a religious person. Our family wasn't religious, you know, at all. When we were growing up, we, you know, lit the menorah candles and once in a while had Shabbat dinner, but it was that kind of thing, you know, it mm -hmm. was not Rachel turned towards religion in her adult life. Um, and is is really an activist, a social activist, as you see in the film. She's been arrested many, many times for fighting for equal rights. And the reason there's that footage of her in New York, and it looks like, wait, how is Andy in New York filming her mm -hmm. and also in L.A. filming her dad is because I've been making a film about Rachel um, long before I was making Last Flight Home. Uh, originally, I called it Rebel Rabbi. I just think she's an so you've trained figure. you've trained your family into suffering suffering the lenses being put trained on them. That's you know. what they would tell you if they were on this podcast right now. They would say that we are so used to Andy filming everything that we just thought, oh, there's Andy just filming. But I knew in this case that by the time Rachel came out, the process of filmmaking needed to be basically invisible, and um, I did ask Rachel's permission on a Zoom before she came out because I didn't want to hurt any of my family's experience of being with dad in any way with the cameras. And she said, it wouldn't be my choice, but what do you think dad? And dad said, I want, I want it. And mom clearly by then also wanted it. They were comforted. I think that something of dad would be left after he was gone. Um, I think dad may have known I was making a film before any of us did, but the rest of us like David, who I, you know, founded Interloper Films, with me and is a filmmaker, but more of an editor. And mate, we may dig together, as you mentioned, like he, I would find him like stepping behind the main camera, which had the law of mics once in a while. Right. Like if his kids were visiting with dad, uh, a happy byproduct of all of this is you could hear what was happening at the, at, at dad's bedside without interfering. And you could mm -hmm. leave people alone. I found my own son crying with headphones on and it, the camera was in another room shooting through a door. Um, and so I, you could be totally out of sight and hear mm -hmm. everything. And he was so it's this incredible, which is leads the, which gives the incredible intimacy that the film has. Yes. And Rachel, like by the time Rachel came, there was one camera behind a TV. There was one on a hospital tray. There was one, uh, you know, in the other room, like I said, there's, there was a nest surveillance camera on the ceiling, uh, which you only see once. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but when mm -hmm. I called Gigi to dad's bedside yep. by yep. then, See, cameras, cameras and filmmaking were really secondary, obviously, to everything that was going on, which was by far the most a, a transformative experience I think any of us have been through. So that by then the cameras had run out of batteries and, and juice and the surveillance camera was up there because I didn't want to worry about labeling cards or anything like that. I wanted yep, to make sure that. To be able to roll. Yep. Yep. And I want to make sure I knew time of day. And mm -hmm. what happened? Because because that therapist did tell me I'd be in shock. And lo and behold, and I've talked to so many people since then. When I turned the when I first fired up the Avid, and my sister said, "Hey, you have footage. Can you make a memorial video?" That's how this all started. Oh, uh, the, the post side. She said, "You know, can you put like five minutes together for for the Zoom memorial?" Um, so a week before, so two weeks after Dad died, I I I, I turned on the 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 Avid. I figured, oh, he, you know, he's talking to his first pilot, flight attendant, I'll find some joyous moments. Um, I couldn't believe it when dad was alive in the Abbott. And I couldn't believe what the observational eyes of the cameras had captured. And of course, I operated them a lot of the time when other people were visiting with dad. But 
I didn't remember so right. much of what happened because yep. I was so concerned. With, I was living so, there's a purity of presence and a sacred sort of, yeah, it's just pure presence when mm -hmm. someone is passing away that is nothing else matters. And so I didn't remember a lot of it, you know, like I was just so in it and not, you know, and I guess in shock. Um, it, yeah. well, it's so it, that's such an interesting point that you're raising because it's like, you know, we know making these films that oftentimes the like the presence of a camera and the lens is kind of like a cat like, changes the chemistry of sort of what's happening in a fundamental way. Right. But I think what you're saying is, you know, in a way it sort of did the opposite in some regards, which was kind of a freeing and enabling, certainly of you personally and your journey to experience it. But it also, um, I don't know, I guess it sort of opened up, it, it, it feels so um, lifelike and so unobtrusive, and yet it's so kind of relentlessly intimate, the film is. Yeah, I think it's it couldn't have been done by anyone on the outside. And I couldn't hire a DP and I would never have thought about bringing in a crew. The reality is that house you see in the film was my house that I raised my son in until he was about eight. By then my parents had moved out to California from Miami to be near the grandkids. And um, they, as you saw in the film, had lost all of their money and everything. So they were in, a, in an apartment and it was on the second floor. And I remember one night seeing my father climb the stairs with his cane and thinking this isn't gonna work mm -hmm. this isn't gonna last dad's gonna fall backwards down the stairs and i don't want that call so i don't want to get that call so i moved i moved to where i live now 10 12 minutes up the road and you can see i ride my bike there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and uh and i moved them into that house so that is technically my house and uh, when I was living there, I was finishing, see, so what was I finishing? Dig. Mm -hmm. I, I moved in there right when I was finishing Dig. And I knocked down the garage and I built edit bays in the back. So the I bunker. actually- You built the bunker. Yeah, I built, a, I built a spot because I was a single mom where I could be finishing my movies close to home. Mm -hmm. And um, and so if I didn't have that, you know, sort of HQ in the back, I don't know that this film would have been possible either because the whole process of filmmaking could be just completely gone in a back mm -hmm. house. And, um, and I, I didn't even step back there. I wasn't concerned with it. You know, mm -hmm. I would just, you know, even my partner who's, as you know, a composer would walk through the room and I'd say, Hey, can you just check and see if those lights are on, mm -hmm. on the cameras? And then, you know, she's like, when I go out to get the medicine, for example, she just picked up her iPhone and started mm -hmm. shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it was really a family spun homemade project mm -hmm. and it wasn't something that, that anybody felt was a professional pursuit, though I'm a professional filmmaker. So it was kind of like, people have said this in Q and A's, like, what are the chances that a man has a rabbi for a daughter and also a filmmaker who shoots right. verite like, documentary films? Exactly. Like, it sounds like the beginning of a joke or something, right? Like, what are the odds? I think it might be the, the reason we're here, you know, mm -hmm. on some level, because the film has helped so many people. I've never made anything in my life. And we started talking about Dig. Dig was probably comes in second of all the mm -hmm. films I've made that have really impacted people because a lot of people became artists um, because of Dig or, yeah, broke out of whatever they were trying to do and went after what they really care to do. 
they felt like they could do it because of dig, which is such a great thing to hear. Every time I hear it, it makes me so happy, you know, mm -hmm. but this, this is a next level. I mean, this is something it's that so we personal. all have to go through. It's well, and, it's, it's, it's so universal and so personal at the same time, right? Exactly. And, and something about it, it, which has revealed a miracle of filmmaking to me is that you get to meet my family and, and really, as you said, get to know my family. You also get to see your own family on screen somehow. Mm -hmm. It's a miracle. And you play out your own death or your the de loss of your loved ones or a loss that you've already experienced. Many mm -hmm. people have had traumatic death experiences of losing people. Um, some people have come up to me and said that or written me very long letters saying, you know, that they didn't even like their father or their, you know, turned ugly at the end or, you know, terrible, terrible experiences and that the film has healed them. And I am, I'm sure it's like my father in film form almost. It's like, he's, yeah, he's like this ball of light, you know, now he's like transformed into a film that helps people, <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing. I, I'd say it's like a dream as an artist to have that kind of impact. And it's something that I don't think could have happened. I, I just don't understand. I don't think it could have happened if it was like, any other family really. Cause like you have to have a filmmaker in the family yeah, it's and a the rabbi. nexus of those things, right? That, and that dad. sort of allowed it. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're launching an impact campaign right now because the organizations that are on the front, you know, lines of, of this basic human right, which I've come to realize is should be a basic right to terminate your life. If you're terminally ill, you have less than six months to live and you're suffering um, to have that, what it allowed our family, that kind of closure, the, grandkids getting to gather around the bedside, getting to that wisdom and that love from dad in those final days, you know, all of the things that are in the film, they, they, they help uh, this cause to relay that this is a, a, a sacred and beautiful time that, that the right to die actually allows. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just, we're launching an impact campaign a little late, usually like those things mm -hmm. happen when you're making the film, but I was so busy being a grieving daughter and like yep. then Absorbed. realizing, you know what I mean? Yep. That's my only excuse, but I'm making up for it now. going to launch a GoFundMe and everything because we're taking it to Washington and we're taking it to Washington June 5th even to try to repeal a, uh, a law from 1997 who people don't even know this exists. Lawmakers don't even know this exists. It turns out um, there's a law that bans federal funding to even in States where it's a right, uh, for Medicare and Medicaid to help with the medicine. So you saw me pay for the medicine yep. and you heard yep. Rachel said she put her credit card down. Um, if we didn't have, it couldn't have afforded it. There's no equal access even to the, to the law. So it's just something I think we we're so, we, we just, as a society, we don't talk about death and dying. We look, away. We look exactly. away as a society, you know, and, 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 and so I we thought... don't realize that we don't have this right. Well, there's York, a couple of, this right. of really striking things to me that you have just said that, that that sort of really deeply resonated. And, you know, I sat I watched it with my wife and we went out to the hot tub afterwards and, and sort of, you know, we're reflecting on the film. And you do see see it as a mirror and see yourself and you do role play it. You role play, you know, the the death of a parent and then you role play your own death and sort of, you know, what you would. And and what I think is I think there are a couple of very striking things about the film. One is the 
graciousness and grace of your father is so striking. You know, you can sort of feel the like you reckoning with the sort of like tension, you know, your sort of inner turmoil and, and all those things that come up. And yet he's so steady and he's so graceful and gracious throughout. He's like the quiet center of, of the whole thing. And it was so beautiful and such a striking um strikingly revelatory of his character and indicative of the life that you, you know, that you, that you conjure for him and that I, obviously he lived and that you tell in the film. And then I thought another really beautiful thing was you see these really fascinating family dynamics happening in miniature. Like when you're sitting there with your sister and I, I don't know the name of the, the, the right, the, the ritual that, that you guys are doing. And she like interrupts you as you start to talk. Right. And she's like, no, 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 like checks you and is like, let him, let him say it. And it like, you feel the kind of love and friction and sisterhood. And then you see the moments with the grandkids and uh, the sort of, you know, desire maybe not to confront things or to ask for things. And it's all of these very universal human experiences and dynamics that you capture like unflinchingly, but lovingly. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I felt that the scene you're referring to is uh, the Vidui. It's a deathbed confessional that happens in Judaism that I'd never heard of. Um, where a person has an opportunity to release their shame and leave the world lighter. Um, we all carry shame and guilt. We all feel like we've fallen short in different areas and we hang on to things that are really, really insignificant in the bigger picture. Um, and they feel really significant to us. And I should say that the main event of this whole journey was to convince dad that he gave us everything when he felt like he had failed us because he had lost his money and been thrown out of the, his company because of, of the stroke and becoming disabled at 53 years old. Um, and because of the stigma around that, he was mm -hmm. um, really sidelined. And so this period of time, like when he's, when, when the movie starts and the journey for us started, he really felt like his death would really not do anything but liberate us from his mm -hmm. burden, the burden of his presence. He didn't feel like he was bringing us anything or gave us anything. And I mean, we credit him with making us who we were, giving us such unconditional love, the grace that he taught all of us that he may have complained five times in his life. We never mm -hmm. knew. I mean, I knew that he was, always playing the lottery, trying to get his money back somehow. I knew that he was um, checking the bank balances. As you see mm -hmm. in the film, he calls Bank of America sort of religiously to check his, you know, four, 400 bucks or whatever he had in mm -hmm. there, um, living off social security. And I, I mean, it was, I knew it was hard on him, but he never put it on us until he was in that moment and rate and, and ready to work with Rachel to let go. And I left that part in where she scolds me because it's a really important learning moment. Mm -hmm. It's also a great way of taking the air out of that scene a little bit and people mm -hmm. laugh in the theater, yep. which is the, the great thing about this film, uh, which is a saving grace, is that there is a lot of laughter mm -hmm. and joy. Um, it's quite an uplifting experience, even though it's terrifying to be walking a plank towards the day you know you're going to lose your loved one. Um, mm -hmm. 
it's also like an incredible opportunity to celebrate their life and to have closure and to have joy um, mm -hmm. around. And dad really is responsible for that. He's the captain of that room and he sets the tone. And, uh, but I guess, you know, all this to say he was, my sister said she sits with lots of people at the end as a rabbi and many of them can't ever voice what, what it is they're holding on to. And it's a, a scene that I think makes the film as much about how to live as how to die. Mm -hmm. Because when you see this great man holding on to these horrible moments of feeling like he owed his friends money and feeling like he was groveling or that he was a gutter rat, I think he calls himself, mm -hmm. and dumb and a schmuck. It was so hard for me to sit there and listen to that, that I knew he had held on to the stock too long because he didn't want to devalue it for his employees. I knew that he had great reasons behind losing all his money. And, um, and I tried to remind him of that. And my sister tells me to stop talking. Uh, here's the exercise, she says. And not only is she my older sister, which is intimidating enough, she's also a rabbi. So you see me like lose like six inches of height. Right, right. And I slink down and everybody laughs. But it's a great moment because you can't take people's shame from them. You right. can't explain to them hey, don't worry about that. You can't say that to somebody you love, even though like you want to help so Well, they're badly. carrying it. Like there, there is literally like until someone chooses to release something, it does. It almost doesn't matter what you say. You and know? people don't know how to release things. Yeah. And so one great learning in the film is it's actually fairly simple. You have to say it out loud. You have to own it, you know, and let it go. And that is something you don't have to wait till the last day of your life to do. And so, you know, my friend Margaret Brown, who made Descendant, left the theater during, you know, the, in the fall in tears, hugged me a bunch, went home and called her father and did a vidui mm -hmm. with him, like on the phone. And he's not like near death, you know, she just wanted right. to yep. get it out there. And it's just like, there's so many moments in this film that uh, allow you to kind of uh, like just observe a family connecting um, instead of disconnecting and the ways in which we can kind of help to heal each other and ourselves, even just in our everyday lives. That was what was made it the most profound moment of my life. And honestly, that was the hardest part was convincing everyone to release the film, to release, not to shoot the film because they to were put it to into me, the world, but Rachel, especially to put it into the world. She was against it um, because a, it's against Jewish law. It was, they've changed it since the film came out. Uh, Reform Judaism now supports the right to uh, medical aid and dying, which is a huge change. Um, after millennia, the rabbis say, a law without tenderness is wickedness. And that mm -hmm. when the rabbis wrote the law, the average time of suffering was maybe five days and now it's years. So mm -hmm. uh, they do this, they say for Canada, because there's equal access to healthcare in Canada, they believe, that it should be supported. And uh, my sister told me the other day, even a, it shows a lot now, a lot of uh, synagogues show it and, and places show it. And she was there at a conservative synagogue and the rabbi said, I think we need to rethink this. So I think mm -hmm. even possibly conservative Judaism is following suit. Amazing. But imagine my sister coming and standing in front of that issue. Like when she was a rabbi, is a rabbi and helping her father die, literally helping hold the cup. And she said to me, Andy, if you can find a shot without my hand on the cup, like when she finally said, okay, I'm going to let this film come out because she showed it to some 
colleagues and they said, you have to let this, like it's yeah, healing. Let it it's, into the world. Yeah. yeah. And she realized how much it was helping people. It could help people. So she's now like shown it at her temple for like 550 people. We were all Amazing. there. Like she's flown her all around showing the film. Like she, she loves the film, but, um, but then she was like, if you could do, if you could just find a shot without my hand on the cup, that would be um, great. Two more questions for you. Um, which are, how hard was it to go into the edit and sit in the edit, you know, after having lived through this and sort of reopening it and then weave it into this film from the experience of it? And how long did you, were you in the edit? So first there was the, the, the edit of the memorial video, um, which, uh, (laughs) I started to tell you that story. So, so sometime before when in that scene that you saw where we're planning dad's memorial in front of him and uh, he's like, yeah, go ahead. Like mm-hmm. that was the other thing about dad that makes him sort of a perfect poster child for people understanding the nuances of what it is to have medical aid and dying and how important mm-hmm. it, it could be um, was his unflinching courage, right? Like he just knew he wanted to do this and at no point does he waver. He never wavered. Yep. Yeah. And that's why when I talk about the peacock at the very end, not walking away from me, we cut to the medicine um, mm-hmm. because he was like that peacock. We actually named that peacock Eli after, after that. But, um, but Rachel says, Hey, so you have this footage. Could you cut like five minutes together? for the zoom memorial. And I sit down a week before and I, I'm like, Oh my God, dad's alive in the avid. It was such a joy. It, I would, tears were flowing. I could not stop editing. I maybe stood up a few times. I slept Once very you were little. In, you were in. Yeah. I was in. And one week later was the memorial. I stood up 9 PM the night before output a 32 minute memorial video. She was not happy with me. Um, that was like step one of her being unhappy with me. Right. The first of several times in which she was not happy with me. Um, I guess the Vidui's first, but yeah. <laughs> so she gets the video and she says, Andy, I had a memorial planned. Dad asked me to plan his memorial. It wasn't going to be a film screening, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but anyway, it became a film screening. She showed the film and, um, in the reception afterwards, people's feelings about death had changed. Like people not only understood medical aid and dying, but they also, and there were, dad's death was not in the memorial video, obviously. It was more like a memorial video. And, mm-hmm. uh, but seeing that footage, people were just, they loved it. And they were less scared of death overall. Mm-hmm. And um, they urged me to continue. And I was already kind of on, I was already loving it. I, I mean, people say, oh, it must've been so hard to cut this film. I was like, actually it was, it was in a way it was the most beautiful edit I've ever experienced. Cause it was giving me so much to be, right. to do it. Um, but in that edit, I went from like grieving daughter to filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing that everybody walking into that room was changed somehow. They had, they, they, every single person, whether it was even our friend Lucy who comes in absolutely terrified of death and dad calms her. And Gentle she, she her, says, yeah. remember she says, uh, what changed? Are you scared? And he says, no. She said, were you? And he said, yeah. And she said, what's changed for you? He said, confidence. confidence. I know I'm yeah. going to see my family. And it's this thin veil between life and death that 
I'm pretty convinced now is, is there where he is watching us now and we can't see them. They're watching us. Um, he could see them as he got closer to it. And he kept saying that. And we've had a few things happen. One, especially recently to my mom, who was definitely not getting any, has dad hasn't visited her, no, no, no voices, no nothing. Had an experience where she fell and Cooper, the caregiver, was told three times by my father with a voice, spoke to him and said, go to Lisa. He appeared at her wow. door within within minutes, like within like a half hour of wow. her falling. He showed up at the door, hadn't been there in a year, said three different traffic lights till Heard the third the time he finally turned and went wow. towards the house. Yeah, that to me was the most, as close Powerful. to empirical evidence as you get. But anyway, that as a filmmaker, I kept seeing people get changed. And then of course, as we discussed, dad has the biggest arc of all. Mm -hmm. He realizes with the love that he's put out throughout his life, it comes pouring back on him pouring in these back. days. Yep. And he realizes, oh my God, Biden won and so did I. Yeah. Uh, no filibusters allowed. I mean, that scene, yeah, which by the way, that talk about shock. I didn't even remember that scene. Hmm. And so you asked me, how long was I in the edit? I was in the edit for a few months and then right afterwards. And I started shooting the new Americans and then I uh, was really working on that film and on the road with that film. And I had made a cut of, of, of this right off the bat. Like I, I, within a, it just came flying through me. Yeah. Um, and it knew I tested what it. Wanted it. To be. Yeah. I, I, I knew is like, it was the, exactly. It was like the first, I mean, I'm, I've edited for years and years and years, but it was the first time that I knew it was like dad was riding co-pilot. It was like, I knew every move to make and I hardly had to change a thing once I made the move. And the only thing I had a hard time cutting and I had to uh, have other people do the first cuts of was his death, the day of his death. But once I saw it and boy, did I weep my way through it and I faced it a few times. I watched it. I watched it. I realized, oh, this has to be in it. And this has, and I ended up editing that like 50 times over, you know, myself um, but I couldn't face it from the raw footage, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Everything else I was, I was down to do. Um, I kept notes when I was filming through that process, I kept a journal. And so whatever I use that as the guide of like mm -hmm. what to look for in the footage. And I just had one wonderful young woman named Jenny Hochberg sitting there crying her eyes out next to me at the avid next to me just pulling stuff. And I'd be like, I need this now. I need this now. I need this now. She pulled it together. But, um, so, so that was the process. And then I went to sidewalk film festival, um, who, uh, you know, I've played it and well, I've won it a couple of times and I just love that festival. It's in Birmingham, Alabama. And the director of that festival called me and said, or wrote me and said, you know, Hey, do you have anything for sidewalk this year? And I said, Oh, I think I might have a short about my dad. Wow. This is like in May or April, you know, dad died in, March. Um, and, and then I, I, she said, okay, great. And I, and then I called her back a couple months later. I'm like, actually it's a feature because <laughs> I hadn't stopped cutting. And then, um, I said, and I would want to show it, but I don't want my name on it. I don't want there to be a title and I don't want anyone to know what they're about to see. And I, I it's going to be a super rough cut. Can we do it as like a secret screening or something? And she wow. said, absolutely. 
And so we had a hundred people on a Saturday walked into uh, afternoon, like walked into the theater. I was sitting in the back and, um, a, like 10 minutes into it, a couple of people stood up and walked out and, uh, Morgan leaned over and she said, I think this is a really bad idea. And I said to her, well, at least it's in Birmingham and we can leave it here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then it turned out those people were getting popcorn. And like when the lights came back up, uh, it was like a standing ovation. And there were two young men in the back balcony that stood up and they said, one of them said, we now have a role model. We have a, a man we can, we can look up to uh, f- for the first time. So thank you for that. And I thought, well, if for nothing else, I need to finish this film. But I was just worried it was too personal. But yeah, I, I'm so happy and so grateful that I made this film. It's been um, the greatest privilege of my life as an artist. And I'm really grateful to MTV Documentary Films for allowing me to uh, put it out in the world in the way that I was able to, you know, share it with so many audiences and you know, the, the, the whole Oscar campaign they did, I, I only did that so that I, I just felt like, you know, I just, I need to, I need to share it. Like I need, we need to come together as audiences mm-hmm. and share this uh, yep. uh, and have this cathartic experience together. And that's what it has been for really hundreds of audiences. And we're showing it again, you know, on, at Neuhaus on um, May 10th and then, you know, in New York and then in Washington and now doing this impact tour with it. Um, you know, it just, the beat goes on and people need this and it's beautiful to be able to share my father with them. So yeah. And I'm grateful to my family too, for their courage and allowing it to come out something so intimate and private, but it felt like it would be wrong not to share it. Oh, and by the way, punchline on my sister saying, could you find my hand not on the cup? I couldn't, there were four cameras and her hand was on the cup. And she said, just go with, I said, I'll cut the scene. I don't want to hurt your career. And she said, just go with it. And uh, Good sister. Yeah. She, she sister. braced herself. We all got together. Sundance went virtual that year because of Omicron. We all got together in a house in Park City just to be together as a family. Uh, it was a scary, scary moment the night before. I thought, what have I done revealing something so vulnerable? But um, yeah, we, we're really happy we did. So I, I, I'm really happy you did too. Thank you for, thank you for making it and thank you for putting it into the world. Happy to. All right. Be good, Andy. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you to Andy Timoner for sharing her time and for making Last Flight Home. Thank you to Rachel and thank you to Eli. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.